0: It's Wednesday, May 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Enhanced child cash benefits will be hitting parents' bank accounts starting July 15th. The IRS will send families monthly payments of $250 to $300 per child to families depending on their ages and incomes of parents. The Biden administration says this is an important step in stamping out child poverty and are hoping to extend this program to 2025. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what to know. Next, cryptocurrency scams spiked 1,000% in the past year, costing about 70,000 people more than $80 million. Two million of that were sent to Elon Musk impersonators. Many of the scams played out in online chat groups and even on dating apps. Kate Marino, business editor at Axios, joins us for how scammers were cashing in. Finally, how do you manage your workforce now that more people are returning to the office? Some workers are sad about leaving their remote work setup, others anxious about getting sick, and there are those that are burnt out. It's important to give employees flexibility, help smooth out social interactions, and foster a focus on workflow. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how to rally the post-pandemic workforce. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: I'm announcing today that on July 15th and the 15th of every month thereafter throughout the year, you will get deposited in your bank account half of your tax cut at least $250 per child each month, a direct deposit into your account. Joining
0: us now is Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeff.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: The IRS, starting on July 15th, will start delivering monthly payments of $300 per child under six, $250 per child six and older for families that qualify. This is part of Joe Biden's uh, American Families Plan, uh, you know, where they passed, uh, I think it was the $1.9 trillion COVID plan, where it all came through on there. And uh, this is just going to be a monthly benefit that uh, families are going to start receiving on this. It's going to be covering about 88%. Of children in the country. So, Jeff, tell us a little bit about uh, this plan and, and how it's going to be playing out.
2: So, I think some useful context for people to understand when they learn about this proposal is that for really um, years, I mean, even decades at this point, America has been an exceptional outlier in how skimpy its benefits are uh, for parents, particularly for parents of young children. We have in this country, despite obviously being you know among the richest, most powerful nations in the world really the highest or really among the highest um, rates of child poverty anywhere. And that, you know, many academics and experts say is the direct result of how little we give to parents when they um, have kids. And so as a result, there's been a large push over years that the Democrats have been calling for and even some Republicans have been calling for to say, let's give some money for parents to help them get through this period where people face huge costs with kids. And you know, if there's any sympathetic population, it's children that shouldn't be through poverty because their parents don't have any money. And so um, we'll be seeing this money start to hit people's bank accounts on July 15th. And the goal is to sort of end this national embarrassment of high rates of child poverty.
0: Now this is an extension of the two thousand dollars per child tax credit that most families would get already. You know, they'd be getting it at the end of the year when they do their taxes and all. But this is different now. They're spreading it out monthly to help, as you mentioned, to your point, to help those families that are having a tough time month to month.
2: That's correct. And you know, in some ways, as important as that is, you know, the monthly change, well, maybe even more important, and this is a little weedsy But what's really important here is that they're changing the structure of the payment so it no longer excludes the very poorest families. The conception of the child tax credit when first implemented and as it currently exists, is that families, or as it exists before this period, um, before Biden's law uh, was signed in March, families who do not earn enough money to offset their tax obligation are not eligible for the payment. So that means if you have no money, no income, and do not receive money from your employer uh, at a certain level, then you actually do not benefit from this at all. What Biden and the Democrats did was change that. So Families, even with no income, receive the full benefit, and that's where the sort of the big anti-poverty impact comes from. There are many Republicans who are saying giving money directly to families who are not working is going to be dangerous because it will encourage those families to stay at home and not work. That has been an argument that Democrats were even persuaded by for decades, but now we're seeing a big shift. And Biden really leaning into that, and they're launching on this plan that will not require uh, Americans to have a certain level of income to qualify for these anti-poverty programs.
0: The Biden administration wants to extend this to 2025 in their American Families Plan. So that's kind of the goal there, but who knows if we'll get there, right? So right now, so far, this program just is for this year only.
2: That's right. And, you know, it's been interesting because the White House keeps saying that their plan will have child poverty. Some experts are skeptical that that is the case, but it would be really quite stunning if they are unable to extend this for next year, given that they have have celebrated that stat. um, If this is allowed to expire, whatever anti-poverty impact it will get from this year will um, be reversed next year. And I can't imagine the administration will be very happy to see that.
0: Republican support is not really there for something like this. And even when it was passed the first time, it was passed without them. Uh, you know, it was just passed but with Democratic support only. So this will be another hurdle that they'll have to overcome when it comes to extending this uh, at all.
2: It seems unlikely at this point that Republicans are willing to. Um really go to the mat. I mean, there, there is opposition to this among Republicans, but a lot of people in Washington think that, you know, with enough tax cuts or tax incentives for businesses that Republicans want, they'd be willing to bargain to say, hey, we know this is an important priority for the Democratic administration. Let's get something in exchange. But the fate of it is very unclear and you never want to be too confident that something will happen, especially when it comes to the United States Congress, which is, as everybody knows, quite dysfunctional.
0: Jeff Stein White House economics reporter at the Washington Post thank you very much for joining us
2: hey it's been a
3: pleasure
2: thanks so much it's like there's a good chance that crypto is the future currency of earth and then it's like well which one is it going to be you know um, and maybe it'll be multiple uh, but um, but it should be considered speculation at this point um, and so you know don't don't go too far on the crypto speculation part
0: joining us now is Kate Marino business editor at Axios thanks for joining us Kate
3: hi thanks for having me
0: wanted to talk about cryptocurrencies and the scams that we saw this past year we saw a spike of 1000% in the past year of scams losses tied to these cryptocurrency scams we've seen fake Elon Musks uh, we've seen scams on dating apps even It's been a a crazy ride for cryptocurrencies in that sense. So, Kate, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing.
3: Sure. I mean, I think the long and short of it is that when people see other people out there making a lot of money on crypto, um, the fear of missing out, the FOMO, makes them exceptionally vulnerable to these scammers, um, and scam artists certainly know that, and they see it in the headlines, and they kind of <laughs> identify that this is this is an easy area to target people in. Um, and the huge uptick in scams and reported losses really just goes right along with um, the uptick in prices of, say, Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned kind of this FOMO aspect of it. We saw a bunch of stuff happening with GameStock, Dogecoin, you know, obviously Bitcoin, a lot of times when we hear about money scams, we think about older people, maybe don't know what's going on as much. The FTC who produced a report talking about a lot of these scams, they said that most of the people that were being scammed were between the ages of 20 and 49.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that kind of lines up with um, just what I've been observing in the market, which is that a lot of this FOMO investing is really driven by online groups and by, you know, apps and new technology. So it's really something that more of a younger crowd is involved in. And really in the online chat groups is a huge part of where um, the scammers kind of like find their victims and gain the trust of people. So that sort of aligns with the younger demographic.
0: Yeah, let's talk about some of those scams and and how they work. As I mentioned, there was a bunch of scams that were where there was a fake Elon Musk asking for investments. And then there was a lot of this happening on dating apps too.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that the online dating, it's literally, it's just yet another iteration of like the catfishing kind of, do you actually know who you're dating? Um, if you haven't met them in person, it might be a scam. Um, and this is just one other way in which, you know, somebody tries to gain your trust online and then you know after they gain your trust they're like oh hey like i've got this tip or this investment and send, send your bitcoin over here and you're going to make lots of money it's it's kind of just one more aspect of that playing out
0: even saw some uh, some of these scams that people said involved the social security administration which you know if they're ever asking you for anything it's probably a scam you know they don't reach out I know, in, I know. in the most traditional like, ways
3: Yeah, like, who among us hasn't gotten a weird phone call on your cell phone saying that you owe the Social Security Administration or the IRS money? It's like, don't listen to
0: those. I mean, they, like, strictly reach out to you by mail. Old-school mail is the only way the Social Security Administration reaches out to you. So anything else is most likely going to be a scam. And, And, you know, one of the things why people love cryptocurrency so much is that the transactions are largely anonymous. But in this case... It helps those scammers because it's just so hard to trace back if you do lose some money out of this.
3: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, scammers like to glom on to some kind of a celebrity name to just gain attention to whatever the scam is. Um, and um, I don't know if you said this figure before, but apparently the FTC said in the last six months that people sent over $2 million to just to Elon Musk impersonators. <laughs> um, which is a lot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the takeaway is that to make money from any kind of cryptocurrency, it's just invest in the cryptocurrency itself. Don't send crypto somewhere thinking you're going to get more back or, you know, do anything else with it. It's like just invest in it. And, you know, you might have some ups and downs, but uh, you got to be ready for that.
0: More generally, though, about cryptocurrencies you know, we've been seeing them have such a big rise in interest and trading, and uh, but we've seen how volatile those ups and downs are. Why is it hitting this moment right now?
3: It's kind of this gamification and democratization of kind of like anyone having access to this potential goldmine investment, um, whereas before technology enabled that um, people didn't have as much access. And the other thing is people have had a lot of time on their hands throughout the pandemic. They're, you know, sitting at home online They're on apps. What do I do? And everyone's financial situation is a little different as a result of the pandemic. You know, some people maybe um, lost their job and they're trying to make money on the side or they got a stimulus check and are trying to put that to use. Um, other people that are not, you know, financially strapped, it might just be more like, "Oh, I've got extra money. You know, what should I do with it?"
0: Kate Marino, business editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so
3: much.
1: I expected this to be be back to normal, and it wasn't. It just felt totally weird. So I think the first thing is for people to just kind of brace for that, expect it, expect that people are going to be anxious and might, you know, take a little time with the
0: transition. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. There's a lot of companies that are formulating their plans to go back to work uh, after this whole pandemic. Uh, Some have already started. And uh, it's kind of a slow rollback. There's some jittery workforces out there that are still concerned, obviously, about getting sick from COVID. Some are a little bummed out that they have to leave their remote work behind and actually go back to the office. So there's a lot of different things playing out. But uh, how should the workplace be handling these types of situations, getting people back and back to normal, for lack of a better way to put it?
1: The number one thing I heard from experts is like kind of recognize that it's not going to be normal right at first. You know, I talked to managers who said like, I expected this to be, to be back to normal. And it wasn't, it just felt totally weird. So I think the first thing is for people to just kind of brace for that, expect it, expect that people are going to be anxious and might, you know, take a little time with the transition.
0: Yeah. You shared an anecdote about, uh, you know, I guess like a little work party or a work lunch that happened and everybody kind of took their sides, you know, some people went outside, some people ran right back to their desk, and it was kind of like uh, nobody knew how to interact with each other uh, like before.
1: They thought it was going to be this kumbaya moment. You know, they used to have these kind of – it was like a monthly birthday lunch for staffers. Um, and they used to they used to have them all the time before COVID. And um, it, they told me it just felt totally weird. Some people just went straight back to their desks to focus on work. I mean, I think that's a huge part of this. There's, there's worries about COVID for sure, but there's also like – a lot of us are burnt out and stressed from working around the clock and not really having boundaries, you know, while working remotely. So some people just took their lunch right back to their desk and kept jamming away on work. Some people gathered inside, some people gathered outside, some people didn't really talk to each other. Yeah, it was just, it was just super awkward.
0: How should we be handling that transition uh, back to the office from remote working? Because, you know, a lot of people felt comfortable that way, uh, working remotely remotely. You know, we were kind of proved that we can do it throughout the pandemic. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking towards uh, some type of hybrid model, spending maybe a couple days at home, the rest at work. Um, So how should that be uh, be handled uh, this time around?
1: Yeah, I think you want to give people autonomy, like recognize how much autonomy they had at home and kind of try to preserve that trust. Don't be kind of leaning over their shoulders. You know, experts told me that can actually reduce motivation. It might increase productivity right at first, but it's really not sustainable long term. You want to you want to ask people questions about how they want to work going forward. You know, don't assume that your experience during the pandemic was their experience and that the things that trip you up, you know, about working remotely trip them up kind of get a sense of of what their experience was actually like and then also remember to preserve kind of like quiet hours and quiet time for people whether that means that they that they spend fridays at home if they're having trouble focusing in the office then or whether you say like this part of the office is a quiet space or these hours are a quiet space i think that's going to be really hard for people to to adjust to you know being back at at loud offices especially if people have kind of open cubicles you know as opposed to to private offices
0: thankfully In my workplace, we've kind of been working throughout the whole thing, but people have been trickling in little by little, new people. So when you see them, you kind of want to catch up a little bit, but, you know, somebody might be on a deadline or have something, you know, they're currently in the middle of. And so that's kind of one of the things I was encountering that, you know, how much time to catch up is appropriate or, or, hey, I'm kind of busy right now. I got to go handle my own thing. That's kind of one of the things that I've noticed, at least in my workplace.
1: I mean, even before the pandemic, I started working remotely a few days a week and I got to a place where I couldn't kind of hunker down on deadline and, and do really deep focus stuff like like writing at the office. It was just it was just too distracting. Um, and I think especially as people come back from this, you know, potentially year long break from seeing each other, everyone's going to want to socialize. That's what, you know, one of the workers who I talked to said just everyone wanted to catch up and she had some trouble focusing. And so what she did, which I think is, is good advice, is she planned to do kind of her more busy work tasks that she could easily start and stop when she was in the office. And then the days she was at home, that's when she had her like really intense conference calls work where she really needed to kind of be in deep focus for hours at a time.
0: How should we be gauging productivity and kind of meeting the, you know, the markers of certain assignments and all that, because in your article you noted that it seems like initially getting to the office productivity will probably be lower and it will kind of start ramping up over time. So how should we be looking at that?
1: Yeah, managers should expect it might dip a bit at first. I mean, the same thing happened when we went remote. A lot of the data shows there was an initial dip in productivity as people got set up got used to stuff, the technological aspects too were a lot for people right at first, and then we saw productivity ramp up. So just expect that this is going to be a bit of a a transition too. I'm going to even talk to people who are like, I'm forgetting files at home, you know, now that I'm going back and forth between the office and home for hybrid work. So there's going to be some growing pains, Um, but try to keep workers' assignments steady at first through the transition. That way you can actually tell if there's a problem, if someone's, you know, missing a deadline that they always hit, as opposed to if you give them some big hairy project, you know, who knows if it's just that the project is hard or if there's something about, you know, switching back to the office, that that is the problem. So try to keep work steady if you can. And then if productivity does dip, don't think of it as in a disciplinary way. Don't, you know, immediately put someone on a performance improvement plan, talk to them, see if together you can figure out a way to make it better. You know, do they need to work at home a different day a week to kind of have that, that deep focus? Are there other things that you could do to kind of help them move through the transition?
0: Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.